If pressed, I think most of us would say we would fight for our country, that we'd defend Canada from those who would do us harm. Hi, I'm Brian Lilly, host of the Full Comment Podcast, and I'm one of those who would say, yes, I'll defend Canada if and when needed. But what does that really mean? How far would each of us go? For most of us, it's just a theoretical question, none that we're hopefully ever going to have to answer. But for our next guest, the question went from theory to reality very quickly, just over a year ago, as Dan Bielak traded his business suit for combats after Russian uh, invaded Ukraine. Over the next while, we're going to talk to Dan about that, about his experience. But before I bring him on, I just want to remind you that if you enjoy the conversations, the explorations of ideas that we do here, then I'm going to ask you to help. Hit the subscribe button or whatever app you're listening to is on, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, but also share. Share this conversation to social media. Email it to your Aunt May and Red Deer. But if you're enjoying the show, spread the word. Now, as I mentioned, Dan's not only been someone who has taken up arms over the last year, he spent a lot of time spreading the word about the fight in Ukraine, the total resistance of the Ukrainian people. And he joins us now from Montreal, where he's on a, a bit of a break from his time in Ukraine. Uh, uh, Dan, thanks for joining us. And, and before I ask you about trading in your business suit for combats, um, you grew up in Canada. How did you end up in Ukraine? Uh, thanks for having me on your show, uh, uh, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I was practicing law in uh, in Toronto, and uh, one of our clients uh, got an order, actually from the Canadian government in 1991, right after Ukraine declared its independence, uh, to print Ukraine's uh, new currency, the hryvnia. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, parliament had declared independence, and uh, you know, as an attribute of sovereignty, it wanted its uh, its own currency. And, and so that was the first, first deal I did in, in Ukraine. It was, uh, it was quite exciting. Yeah. You, you have Ukrainian background through your parents. Is that correct? That's, that's right. Okay. So did you speak the language going over? Did you, um, understand the culture? I mean, sometimes there is a real difference between diaspora culture, the immigrant culture that many of us have grown up with and well, what people still live back in the home country, like what was that culture shock like for you going over? Yeah, I'd grown up in the Ukrainian uh, Canadian community. I was quite involved uh, uh, throughout my 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 childhood, and my youth, um, and you know, I spoke uh, I spoke diaspora Ukrainian, if if you like, uh, sort of a, a mix of uh, of uh, English syntax and and, and Ukrainian. Uh, but when I went to Ukraine, especially to Kiev, uh, the first time in a, in October of ninety one, um, I was shocked that most people actually spoke Russian. And uh, which I didn't speak and I didn't understand. And uh, and so I was wondering, like, where, where are all the people that they taught me about in Ukrainian school on Saturdays? Um, <laughs> and, and, and it was it, it's actually a, an interesting uh, metaphor uh, for for what's happened uh, over the, the years. And my, my career took a, a very, very different track than the one I had uh, had anticipated. And I and I ended up uh, being in Ukraine for the last uh, 32 years, essentially. And basically, you know, in some small way, uh, hoping to contribute to uh, the uh, the na- building of a nation, essentially from scratch. Ukraine was basically a, a colonial uh, outpost of the of the Soviet Union uh, at the time, and uh, you know, heavily Russified in the cities because of the Russians. Uh, this is what Russians do when they when they colonials colonialize people. They tell them. You're not really who you say you are. Your language isn't really your own. It's only some sort of guttural dialect. You don't really have a culture, and you're actually Russian, 
and we're here to liberate you from all of the, your preconceived notions. And if you don't like it, we'll kill you. And, you know, it's, it's ironic because the, all the progress that Ukraine has made over, over the past 32 years is this is the end result, is that Russia could not handle it. Putin could not handle it. Um, and uh, this was a, especially the democratization of Ukraine and uh, had to be stopped and stamped out. And that's where we are today. So you've watched Ukraine grow and change then. Well, how has it changed? How has it grown from that Soviet outpost that you describe to the country that it is now? And, you know, look, there's a lot of critics of Ukraine, and you know that. I'm sure you hear that. Uh, and I want to get into questions about corruption and everything else. Ukraine's not the only country to either deal with that or, or face accusations, but there has been a tremendous growth in in democracy and civil society over the past 32 years, hasn't there? No, absolutely, Brian. In fact, that's the whole story. Uh, that is the story of the development of, uh, of, of Ukraine. I mean, you know, every, every, uh, every country that goes through a transition to democracy from totalitarianism is going to be faced with these challenges. All of our Eastern European neighbors went through it. Uh, many other countries in, who, that weren't part of the Soviet Union but went from dictatorship to, to trying democracy. It's, it's extraordinarily difficult because, you know, in Canada, we take all our democratic institutions, our courts, our parliament, our voting, um, the, the rule of law, fairness. We sort of accept that that's the norm. Well, that isn't the norm, actually. And, and when you're actually building a society moving from, uh, you know, repression and arbitrariness and, uh, uh, you know, basically treating people like slaves to one where people have voice and agency, it's extraordinarily difficult. And really the driver in that, in that uh, process over the past 30 years has been Ukrainian civil society and Ukrainians' desire for freedom and self-determination. It's what, what's driving the, the change, what drove the changes in the country then and what's driving the war now is people's desire to have the right to choose things that we in Canada take for granted. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned over, over 32 years is, uh, abroad is, is that, you know, we in Canada and North America and parts of Europe, we sort of take, uh, our freedom as an entitlement. And, and, you know, one of the lessons I think is that freedom's not free, that you, you actually have to stand up and, and, and fight for it. And, you know, fundamentally for me, both as a, a Canadian uh, trained and, uh, and educated lawyer, uh, and as somebody who lived in, in, in that environment in Ukraine for, for, for this period of time, is the important, you really understand what the importance of institutions are. Because if you're relying just on people, it will, you will always end up with, uh, with a corrupt society because power corrupts. I've been an advisor to uh, two ministers. I was chief of staff twice to the Minister of Justice of Ukraine, and I've advised two prime ministers. Uh, my last incarnation. I was the uh, chief investment advisor to Prime Minister Groisman. And from 2016 to 2019, I ran, I, I founded and ran Ukraine Invest, the Ukrainian government's investment promotion agency. And I had to deal with all of this, uh, the issues that you raised about, you know, corruption, transparency, accountability, etc. And, uh, you know, Ukraine during that period, post Maidan, post revolution of dignity, after the Russians invaded, uh, uh, and annexed Crimea and invaded the Donbass, um, you know, Ukraine made greater strides than probably any country in the world in building institutions of an anti-corruption architecture, 
um, uh, public uh, procurement, uh, transparent public procurement system. We, we actually won an international award for the best public procurement system, if you can believe that there's such an award. Um, and, <laughs> that does uh, seem like an uh, oxymoron. Uh, well, it sounded like a riveting evening at a, at a banquet anyway, but I, <laughs> I, but you know, it, it, it was important signal and, uh, um, but we couldn't get any traction. People were always telling us, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? And, you know, as I because I was right in the thick of it, uh, I could understand where this was starting to come from. It was the fact that the Russians were putting out, they were just trolling us day and night, putting out the narrative of a failed state. And this gets picked up by the media and it goes into this echo chamber that you, you just can't crack of, you know, it's, no. it's corrupt, it's bad, it's corrupt, it's bad. Um, Ukrainians didn't help themselves in the sense that many incidences of corruption uh, went unpunished. So uh, while we were really good at building, you know, the institutions, which is really the way you deal with corruption long term, um, you know, a lot of people were getting away with bad behavior. And so they were, they either had oligarch ties and, and things like that. But frankly, that, I mean, when you compare the scale of corruption in, in Russia, we look at their army now, you know, they spent hundreds of billions of dollars, so-called modernizing their army, and it was basically all stolen, as it turned out. Today, they're using tanks and, and weapons uh, from the 1950s on the battlefield. And, and so, it, it, you know, I did see firsthand how corrosive uh, a corruption is, um, how it uh, holds you back from democracy. Uh, but the people always spoke up. You know, we had so, the Orange so Revolution. What, what yeah, would ahead. you say then, though, to the people who say, no, it's still corrupt? And it's just a money laundering operation for the West. And yeah, I'm sure you see these things. I get them sent to me all the time because of my outspoken support for Ukraine. But I get told it's just a money laundering operation for the West. Zelensky's a bag man. They're just stealing all these billions that we're sending over. Yeah, what would you say to your, your fellow Westerners who have fallen prey, I think, to Russian propaganda, but you were in the thick of it? What would you say? I would, I would tell them, first of all, show, give me the proof. I mean, when you look at what's going on on the battlefield, uh, I would I would say the evidence shows that we have used all of the equipment that we have used that we have received. Not only are we using it, but we're using it very very effectively. Um, uh, this notion of these are Kremlin talking points that you're you're telling me. So these people are either uh, dupes uh, and, and and quite naive in, in falling for the propaganda and not willing to educate themselves on on what is clearly in the public domain from lots and lots of reports as to what is happening. Um, we've had some incidences recently where corruption has been uncovered. And it, the, di the difference this time, Brian, is that it's been dealt with very, very quickly. Uh, arrests have been made. Prosecutions have been made. We have a new anti-corruption prosecutor. Cases are coming to the court. People are being sentenced. So that, that institutional uh, infrastructure that we put into place is now coming to, to, into, into being implemented and uh, and being used uh, effectively. So, uh, frankly, I, I think this is a great story. And the fact that these cases are actually bubbling to the surface and they're being dealt with very, very quickly and ruthlessly uh, shows that we are on the right track, actually. So in the past, if an official was start, caught uh, siphoning off money, nothing would necessarily happen. Now, if that happens, they're facing jail well, time. Well, it's it, th yes, that's correct. But it's also it's also part of a larger picture that, uh, like many many countries that undergoing this transition from totalitarianism to
to democracy, you have state capture along the way, uh, sort of a, an unholy alliance between uh, the, uh, the political elites from the old system, in our case, the so-called nomenclatura, communist era nomenclatura, who uh, now have total power, and uh, oligarchic elites that uh, seize the economic power. They basically acquire state-owned assets at very, very nominal sums and make uh, fortunes off of them. And because of their clout and the economic uh, uh, levers that they possess, they also acquire political levers in those areas and are able to put their own uh, uh, representatives that will protect their interests in parliament. And it makes it very, very difficult to fight corruption effectively when uh, many of the people that are in either in the courts or in the parliament or in the government are working either in concert with or, or, or directly for uh, oligarchic interests. Well, Brian, that President uh, or Vladimir Putin has, uh, has solved that problem. Uh, many of those assets that are oligarchs controlled are, are now lying in ruins and rubble across the nation. I, I really think, and, and, and the sacrifices of the Ukrainian people have been so immense that, uh, you know, even with my Eastern European Ukrainian cynicism that I've acquired over the 30 years, uh, I, I think it would be a very hard time to see that kind of a oligarchic uh, clan uh, emerge again. Uh, this is it's going to be, civil society had already come to a point where it was very, very strong, where government feared it. I was in the government after the Maidan. Let me tell you, there were sessions where the prime minister would listen to somebody uh, talking about curtailing some sorts of freedoms on, you know, for businesses. And he said, you know, if we pass this, they're going to carry us out of here on pitchforks. And, <laughs> and that was, that, that's a, that, that was, you know, it was very much oriented to, we got to make this a, a people centric, a citizen centric society. And uh, before the war, the fact that we received uh, Schengen free uh, visa travel to the EU uh, for Ukrainian uh, passport holders in 2016, transformed the country. 20 million people went abroad and, and came back. And they saw how these societies are organized. They saw how they function. And they said, we want that. So has there been a, a, a transformation from Ukraine being Moscow looking to being looking towards Europe? Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, in fact that, that Rubicon was essentially crossed with the Maidan Revolution. Uh, the the revolution for dignity of dignity in, in 2014, um, not you know it wasn't across the country. The Maidan was in Kiev. It was you know, people came from around the country, but you know Eastern Ukraine was still sort of saying, you know, who are these people? What are this? What is this for? Very paternalistic uh, Soviet kind of societies. It's not that they loved Russia. They they kind of missed the Soviet Union, and that's what Putin was offering them. He said, we're we're going to go back to the USSR. And, uh, and, and that was sort of the siren call for, for a lot of people. But that eight years between uh, the Maidan revolution and the uh, all full-scale invasion uh, transformed eastern Ukraine, as it turned out. Uh, places like Mariupol, uh, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, Kherson, which, you know, were Russian-speaking and, you know, they were patriotic. But it turns out that the, the next generation of, of, of kids they were born already in independent Ukraine, came of age. They were in their 20s and their 30s, and they turned out to be rabid patriots. 
And, you know, when, uh, you know, the Russians expected people to greet them with, uh, with flowers and bread and salt, which is a traditional Ukrainian greeting. And uh, instead, they were met with, uh, with, with ferocious, ferocious resistance. And, and it shocked them because Putin made three big mistakes. He believed his own propaganda about the, about the West. He believed his own propaganda about Ukrainians. And he believed his own propaganda about his own army. And um, the Ukrainians was the biggest shock uh, because, you know, in his mind, we have no agency. We are just a colonial. We, we, are, we, are, we are Russians. We are, deserve to be colonized. We must be colonized. And if we're not going to be in colonized, we don't recognize that we are Russians and that we should, we should all be speaking Russian, then we'll be killed because we're Nazis. And this is the calculus. And this is why this is a war of extermination right now. It's a war of annihilation. And we have, we have no choice but to fight it. And that, that resistance started, really came to, to life during the Maidan. And it carried our army throughout the period, the eight years, where we were fighting the Russians in, in the Donbass. They were largely supported by a volunteer army of citizens that, that, the, that rallied and, and was providing humanitarian and medical aid, etc. This, this, this concept that you mentioned right at the beginning of total resistance is very profound. You're either on the front or you're working for the front. And, uh, and I want to get that into that in a moment. That's where I planned to start, and our conversation took a different path. But we'll take a quick break and, and come back, and I'll ask you about that total resistance. The total resistance of the Ukrainian people is something that I don't think Vladimir Putin expected when he launched his invasion of Ukraine more than a year ago. Um, Dan, you mentioned that off the top, that you're you're either working on the front or working for the front. You're someone who was a lawyer. You were in business. You were in government. I don't want to, you know, age shame you or anything here, but you're 62 years old and, and you went from the life you knew to going to military training. I did my basic training when I was 18 and it was tough. What's it like for you? as part of this total resistance, flipping around and as a 62-year-old, going and learning how to, you know, putting on combats and learning how to do maneuvers. Yeah, to, to, to say it's surreal doesn't tell you anything. Um, you know, at, at my age, in my profession, you, you should be hanging out at the, uh, at the country club uh, sipping whiskey with your clients. Uh, but, uh, you know, life ta- takes, uh, takes its turns. I made my my choice uh, a long, long time ago, Brian. Um, I'm all I'm all in. Uh, my younger children live in Ukraine. My family's in Ukraine, and uh, um, you know everything I have is in that country. I've I've put my you know my my whole professional career has been around helping to build the country and make it a, a Western democracy. And whatever small role that I played, I'm I'm, I'm very proud of that. Um, and you know. Why, why should somebody else go and defend all of this when, when I'm capable of doing that? And uh, so it's, it's, it's also, there's also an aspect that I have a, as, a, as, a, as a sort of semi-foreigner, as they call me, I'm a special kind of foreigner, uh, you know, the Ukrainian background, I speak the language, I identify with the culture and everything else and the people. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I could leave. It's easy. I have my, I have uh, my passport. I have my age. I could, I could, I could leave. Uh, I could have left uh, before, but it's also a signal. It's a signal to um, Ukrainians that there are that other people believe that there are things worth fighting and dying for, and it's a signal to Canadians and to Americans and others that 
you know, and, and some of the very brave people that have gone to fight in the International Legion from country from from backgrounds and countries that have no connection with Ukraine because they believe in the same thing. There are some fundamental principles that are that are that are that are here at stake, and we touched upon that a few minutes ago with the idea of of of, of freedom and, and and justice, and and you know there are it's better to stand on your feet and die a free man than to 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 live on your knees as a slave. Um, it's 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 not much more elemental than that. You were uh, chatting with your old law school friend, uh, Paul Robitaille, a little while ago, and she wrote that great series for National Post, Back to the USSR, about her experience going back. And you described some of the, the challenges of, of going from uh, office work to, to training, specifically you know, what it's like to go and in, in, in clear a house. Can you explain a little bit of that for the listeners? Uh, what, what does it mean training to go clear a house or a building? Yeah, well, my experience doing that taught me that if I don't have a tank to level the house, I'm probably not going to go inside. It's pretty scary. I mean, you 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 have to storm storm a building, uh, go inside. Uh, you don't know what what awaits you. Whether you know who's hiding where, where the trip wires are, uh, where they're going to lo- where whether you can get a grenade lobbed at you. Uh, you know, of course, we're using fake grenades in uh, in uh, in training, but they still go bang. And um, you know how you come into a room with your with your unit, who covers whom, where do you position yourself, and and you know then you go upstairs. I mean, it was it's just like it's actually in training, it's nerve wracking. And of course, we're in a controlled environment, and the same thing that we do with our training in uh, uh, in the open when we go into forests and fields and. Uh, and, and places like that. And, and, and you, you know, we, we, we practice assaults, we practice uh, ambushes, we practice retreats, which is actually the most important thing to learn how to do uh, so that you don't fall over each other and shoot each other on, on, when, you, when, you're, when, you're, when you have to go back. Um, you know, I, 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 when I heard about these, these Russian kids and, and, and men that are being mobilized uh, and being sent to the front with uh, two weeks training, I mean, I've had a year of training. Uh, and, and I just thought to myself, my God, these guys are dead. They're dead. They're not, I mean, you're, you're, they're not going to last 40 seconds out there because you, you know, even in a controlled environment, it could be chaotic in, in a, on a battlefield. We were, we were taking people uh, from our, uh, battalions, uh, ter- territorial defense force battalions that had just been formed in January of 2022. And during the siege of Kiev, uh, of Kiev, we we were taking people up to see how they were going to react in this situation. And uh, you know, we weren't front line, but you know, you're carrying ammunition, you're carrying rockets or RPGs, and and you know, helping set up and things like that. But you know, there's artillery going around off around you. There's a small arms fire. There's a, I mean, the, it's just 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 nuts. And uh, and 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 you know, everybody we took up said they wanted to go back. Nobody freaked out. It's interesting that how you describe the training. I mean, you, you, you are essentially a reservist territorial uh, defense force. You're not the front lines, but you, you're getting more training than the uh, Russian forces conscripts that are being sent out. Now, I've read many articles on this, and it's not just propaganda, that the the Russians just are not training their military, and they haven't trained their military well for a long time. How important for the the people who are on the front line 
is the training that Ukraine has received from countries like Canada, the U.S., the U.K., uh, to professionalize the army uh, since what I think it began really in earnest around 2014? That is a great question, Brian, and and it's one I don't often get, but I, I should, um, and uh, because it is everything. It is everything. The training that we received from Operation Unifier, big shout out to the Canadian government and the Canadian Armed Forces for, for the fantastic work that they've done over over eight years in, uh, in, in training our troops, along with American and other, other countries and uh, other countries' troops. And that had transformed uh, our senior officer corps, and it's it transformed our junior officer corps and non-commissioned officers. And that was the most important difference between the Russians, because our guys were taught how to think, not what to think. The Russians teach their officers what to think, and they follow orders, and they just and the Russians have the Russians are fighting and prosecuting this war the same way they fought every war for three hundred years. Stalin said, quantity has a quality all of its own. And they just, they they don't care about lives. It's just meat, right? It's just cannon fodder. And you just keep sending waves and waves and waves until the other side runs out of ammunition. And then you just keep going. And the slaughter that is going on in Bakhmut, I mean, we're losing a lot of people too. We're losing our, our, some of our, our top soldiers that people have fought the whole war. And they're sending at us the dregs of their society. They cleaned out their prisons, their penal colonies. I mean, these aren't shoplifters, Brian. These are murderers, rapists, uh, uh, pedophiles, cannibals, HIV, deliberately taking HIV and hepatitis C infected people uh, to rape women so that they, they, they will be infected. It's just, just awful. And the thing is, they don't clear their bodies. Then the next wave comes over, and they're climbing over the bodies of their of, of their people. We're we're killing them at a ratio of seven, five, five or seven to one, depending on your your sources. But you know, Bakhmut was there to degrade the Russian army, and and it's happening. But our our guys aren't massed as a rush as a as a big huge massive army. We are we we fight much smarter. We fight much more effectively. We fight more much more at the unit level, and. All of that plays to the strength of the Ukrainian people, which is we are much more self-organizers than, than taking orders kind of people. But the fact that we had the military training over eight years to actually channel that national characteristic into a battlefield situation has been the entire difference in this war. And, and of course, getting, you know, getting the right equ- equipment and getting the right kit, which we still haven't got enough of. But that's a, that's a different story. Well, yeah, many of us here keep pushing the government to do more and uh, and will continue to do that. Uh, tell me about um, something I've seen you mention in other interviews, other podcasts, the babushkas making borscht. Yeah. Well, this this comes back to the total resistance where, you know, and you talk about front line and 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 uh, and uh, a reserve line. When when you get into a battlefield, a hot battlefield situation, the lines blur and become indistinguishable. Um, this took place in Chernihiv. It took place on the on the other side of Kiev from where I live, in in in, uh, in Buchansky Rayon, Buchirpin, and all the places that suffered ho- so horribly under under Russian occupation. Um, and uh, it happened in the south when they when the Russians attacked there, and in the east. And you know, territorial defense force working with special forces, working with the army, all, all in common cause, and and just doing whatever needs to be done. And then you have the local population pitching in and. 
this story, which I, I just I can't find the photo. I, I'd love to find it again of the, you know, when uh, when that huge armored column was stalled uh, outside of Kiev. It was stalled because we, we shot out the tracks of, of the tracked vehicles and we blew up the tires of the of the, uh, the, the, the the other ones. And and so they were rolling on their discs and there's only so fast you can go through on mud and roads uh, in the wintertime. And so we were we were taking them out systematically. And, you know, the, there's this great picture of the gran this granny coming across the the field. Uh, on the one hand, uh, she's got a pail of uh, of borscht, uh, traditional Ukrainian beet soup, and in the other hand, she's got a pail of Molotov cocktails that she prepared. You know, feeding the boys. You know, <laughs> and uh, and girls too. I mean, forty thousand women serve in the Ukrainian armed forces. Five thousand of them in uh, frontline combat positions. Our best snipers are women, by the way. Men beware. You talk to uh, you you talk to anybody at any gun club, and they'll tell you women are. Uh, are better shots because they better better breathing, better patience, and they listen to the instruction. That's what I hear every time I'm at a gun club. Yeah, so that, would, that, that part doesn't shock me. <laughs> Your description of of each level supporting the other. I, I had very little time in the military, but I, I did get to train for a little while with the special forces, and I knew nothing. But being able to support these guys in a training exercise, you learn so much. So it, it really is, you know, you, you can, you're basically doing the things that they don't have time to do. And then the civilians are doing the things you don't have time to do that, that becomes quite powerful. Well, and it, and it, and, it, and you take one line behind, I mean, I do the training and everything else. And if, if, if it came to it, I would, I would be sent or do whatever I'm, I'm told by my unit commander in a, in a, in a difficult situation. But my primary role in the Territorial Defense Forces has been to, because that's, everybody uses their own skill set, right? Um, and mm-hmm. and I, I was able to help kit out my, uh, my battalion, uh, in my, the battalion in my region, the Territorial Defense Force Battalion, at the beginning of the war. Uh, I mean, these guys, they're like you and me, Brian. I mean, you're, you're, you're like Rambo compared to these people uh, with, with having had Special Forces basic training at 18. I mean, there were people like me that, you know, I shot skeet twice at the Montreal Gun Club when I was, at, when I was a student at McGill. <laughs> and uh, that was it. And uh, never held a rifle. Now I own an AR-15 and, I, and, I, and, and I've been issued a Kalashnikov uh, AK-74. I mean, I could be the NRA's uh, representative in my, in my village if, uh, if I applied. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the essence of this is that um, you know, I was providing them, I was sourcing them with, uh, with helmets and body armor and IFACs, the, the, the medical kits uh, that they wear on the field, because we had nothing. You know, people came in, in running shoes and boots and jackets and gloves and a, and a toque uh, to defend their country. And, you know, they didn't know if they were going out in the front line because of the advances that were making, that the Russians were making uh, into Kiev. Into and, um, you know, I had done all of this. I mentioned I was in the government four times and, and you know, we'd done this policy work and, and reform implementation and many things that, you know, you don't get the impact of for, for, for many, many years. Nothing, nothing compared with handing my neighbor and, 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 and people in our battalion, other people in our battalion with a helmet and body armor and seeing the looks on their face like, Man, I may not die in the first volley. You know, it was the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And you know, I I, I I kept trying. I tried to join the the regular army. I even they said you're too old. 
I went, I said, I'm in better shape than a lot of these guys. Like, what are you talking about? And, uh, and then I went to the military intelligence and, uh, they said, well, no, we can't take a Canadian, which was really bizarre. But, uh, and then it wouldn't give me Ukrainian citizenship because I, they wanted me to continue doing my information war side as a Canadian. So everything pointed going back to the territorial defense forces. And I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the, of the people I serve with and, and, uh, you know, we, we've got a, a very good uh, battalion and we've got very good volunteer units that are attached to the battalion. And we've sent out routinely three to three to four hundred people from our, our communities uh, to as volunteers to, to go to Bakhmut and Solidar and Vuhladar and, and places like that. The, the spring promises to be challenging. What's your sense? Yeah, sorry. There's an air raid warning that just went off on my app here. So there, uh, and into Kiev. Um, I hope it's not going to be another one like the, the other day because that was brutal. Um, uh, my sense is that, uh, you know, we, ha- we have to move to an end game, uh, Brian. I mean, you've got to, uh, we, we, we need to get the equipment and the kit that we've been promised in uh, now even in an accelerated format. We were supposed to get this stuff in, in November and December. Uh, we were actually, pl- I, I, you know, my, I mean, I'm not privy to super secret information, but basically, we were we were the plans were made to do a winter campaign, a counteroffensive, and now it's a spring counteroffensive. And you know, as as Voltaire said, you know, God is not on the side of the big battalions; God is on the side of those who shoot best. And you know, if we don't get the equipment, we're outnumbered. We're outnumbered, and we're outgunned. You know, they're like they're like a, a a dying dinosaur. You know, you got the brain of a pea, but you can do an awful lot of damage as you stagger around the forests and the fields. And uh, there's a lot of them, and they and they're dug in now in the south, and that's what we have to liberate first in order to gain control of Crimea and uh, and our ports. That's the lifeline of our economy, and we need to get those, especially the Bradley fighting vehicles, especially the the anti-aircraft that you saw what happened the other day, they're now using their strategic uh, uh, high precision um, uh, bomb uh, missiles against civilian targets to, to, to try to bring us under. And, and we can't see those. We don't have anything in our air defense that, that picks them up as they're, as they're coming in. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a turkey shoot if they're, using, if they're prepared to use their hypersonic missiles. Uh, so we need to have we need the longer range shells that allow will allow us to take out their their bases and their and their and their depot their supply depots and their fuel depots and things like that. They're they're just beyond. We've been limited to eighty kilometers. Now we're getting one hundred and fifty, and so we'll be able to reach a lot of these places. But you know they won't give us the Americans won't give us the three hundred kilometer ones. I mean it's just you know being on a drip feed is not a way to win a war. And even though I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound ungrateful. I mean, I, God forbid. I mean, we're if if it had not been for 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 Canada, the United States, Great Britain, and our and our other NATO uh, partners, we would have been toast a long time ago. We we wouldn't even be having this. Con- we'd be having a very different conversation. Um, yeah. But you know, you're either gonna you got to be in it to win it. You you got to get over the fear of escalation. He weaponizes that fear and doubles down. He sees weakness. And it means it gives it encourages him to you know go to 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 go further, and uh, you know I understand that there were shortages in the West and things like that, but come on, I mean it costs the cost of this battle 
of supplying Ukraine has been 0.01% of the GDP of NATO countries. I mean, it's, it's not even a rounding error. And, and it's not a cost factor. It's, it's, just, it's about the, the, you know, the, the fear that something is going to escalate. We have crossed so many of his red lines that you know, it doesn't make any sense anymore. You call his bluff. That's what you do with a, with a KGB agent. He's weaponizing psychological warfare. And, and that's and how you working. deal with a bully. Exactly. exactly. Dan, thanks so much for your time and um, hope to God you stay safe over there. Well, thank you for having me. God bless the people of Canada and, and thank you so much for all your help. All right. Dan Bielak joining us from Montreal on his way back to Kiev shortly. Uh, Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, the host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, etc. And listen through your Alexa-enabled devices. Leave us a rating or a review. And as always, thanks for listening.